Hey everybody, it's Chris. If you're a sports fan like me, or you're just a fan of a great story, you gotta check out Press Box Access, a sports history podcast hosted by Todd Jones. Todd sits down with fellow sports writers who experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past 50 years, and they share some of the stories behind the stories, some of which they've only told to each other. What I personally love are the wild stories that you might not hear so much about on SportsCenter over the years. Like when Indiana-based sports journalist Bob Kravitz recounts the time Bobby Knight showed up naked to an office meeting with him and then banned him from the Hoosiers' locker room for the next three years because Bob wrote a story he didn't like. Or when Alexander Wolfe tells a story about going out on the town in Chicago with Dennis Rodman and Carmen Electra in the middle of a Bulls playoff series. Or when Dan Wetzel talks about what it was like to be in the media room when Temple basketball coach John Chaney stormed into UMass coach John Calipari's press conference after a game and threatened to kill him. These wild and fun stories, paired with stories about real sports greatness, you know, like the 1970s Steelers being the greatest NFL dynasty ever, or the legendary rivalry between Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, and even the impact of protests for social justice issues in sports, make Pressbox Access a show you should check out. Pressbox Access is part of the Evergreen Podcast family, and it's available all the places you get your pods, and you can also find Pressbox Access on YouTube. Go check it out. Need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. In 1984, the bizarre pseudo-hip-hop new wave song Somebody's Watching Me hit the radio waves and left a huge mark. Yes, it's possible that the chorus from Michael Jackson helped quite a bit, but still you couldn't help but want to know more about Rockwell and his bizarre rapping style. Chris isn't here this week, but you get myself, producer Matt, talking about Rockwell with Andrew Gower, the star of Monster Squad and the director of the upcoming documentary Wolfman's Got Nards, to discuss why the 80s was the only time something like Somebody's Watching Me could ever exist. One hit is all you need to make the money guaranteed. And you can live off royalties forever. And it makes me wonder, is it just a wonder, or is it one hit thunder? Happy Halloween from One Hit Thunder. Unfortunately, Chris is unable to be here, so you just get producer Matt, but that's fine. Because we have an exceptional guest this week. We are joined by Andre Gower, the star of Monster Squad and the director of Wolfman's Got Nards, the new documentary about Monster Squad. Oh, that's me. So I gave you a simple assignment. We do a podcast about one hit wonders. I said, we're going to do your episode the week of Halloween. Give us a spooky one hit wonder. And you came through with probably the most appropriate one hit wonder Halloween song to discuss 
while promoting a documentary that came out in 1987. Um, <laughs> That's sort of why it worked in there, you know, with with lists of suggestions by more than one source. And it came, yeah, it, it ended up being perfect. It's Somebody's Watching Me by Rockwell. I did a little bit of research on Rockwell, even listened to a few of his other songs. And I have kind of, I know where I've landed with this song, but I want to know, do you have a personal attachment to this song at all? I do. And I think that's why it rose to the top of the list when you're thinking of, you know, either spooky themed or horror. They're not about a horror themed. I guess you'd have to pick a song from a horror movie, but that seemed like cheating, you know, because it's just some rock song that they put on a soundtrack. So that's not really the it's not really in the in the spirit. And usually if they're reaching out to an artist, they they have a hit already. That's, that's right. Yeah. Rockwell, it hits me personally because that's right in the era of not only MTV, but VH1, because VH1, before it was VH1 and owned by MTV, it was a local affiliate station in LA that we got. And Richard Blade from K-Rock, who's like the, <laughs> the the morning or either the drive time DJ on K-Rock became the VJ on VH1. And they played a lot of the videos that MTV wouldn't play or didn't play. And so that's where we got a lot of the cool shit, like uh, new wave stuff and, and some of the I don't want to say alternative, but al- alternative to top 40. You know, I, I don't remember where this debuted on the video world, but the videos were huge. You saw the video sometimes before you heard the song, but Rockwell came out with the song and it was totally 80s, awesome camp cheese radness and had a fun video that was straight out of a Hitchcock museum. This song almost feels like it was written for the music video more than the music video was created for the song. You almost could look at it that way, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. They're, they're very tied together. I mean, I love this song. I think that this song is great. But my unpopular opinion is that I think that Rockwell is probably the the least impressive part of this song. I think that you know that you've got this awesome pipe organ synth sound just like driving this song. And then obviously the iconic chorus by Michael Jackson. And then Rockwell's just doing this weird, I don't even want to call it rapping because it's kind of just a almost like a monologue that he's giving. It's just a it very <laughs> weird thing. <laughs> and I wrote it down. I was like the very first time like the first bars or you know that he that he says something it, it's not that bad but then he goes into this like this weird kind of i think he saw a Vincent Price like advertisement <laughs> when i'm alone at night <laughs> you know like what is happening here i was like you're like this cool slick dude that you know should be dancing around the house and you know except for you're in the shower and you're in a towel you know b- being paranoid <laughs> yeah it was just kind of this weird thing but i think that made it different and kind of made it cool you know, and then as you get deeper, you know, it's like, oh, you know, oh, they even reference Psycho, uh, you know, it's it's in the shower and, you know, you know, the video is, like you said, almost synonymous with the song now. So you almost got to get the video out of your mind when you're just concentrating on the lyrics or something. But it was kind of a big hit. It wasn't just like a video thing. It was like a flash in the pan. Like this song played like oh, it was it, it was a thing. And you would think it would tied into something, but it was like a single on its own. So it's funny you should say that because the song actually ended up peaking at number two on the top 40. Uh, And during the time that it was up there, the only songs that were keeping it from that number one spot were Van Halen's Jump, 
and Footloose by Kenny Loggins. We're constantly battling in that that first place, keeping it from getting to the top of the chart. And those two definitely should have kept it at number two. <laughs> exactly. It's like number two on the chart is nothing to be ashamed about. That is an impressive feat that any musician on the planet will tell you is a dream come true. Absolutely. It's a huge accomplishment for any single. And if you're going to have one hit, you want it to peak at number two because that's sort of a career. But did he need a career? I mean, he's coming. That's what everybody kind of gave a little bit of, I don't know, a side glance. What were we, you know, 12, 13, like like we gave a rip. But, you know, it's like, oh, it's easy. You know, he can make hits because he has, you know, access to all the great stuff because he's very Gordy's son. So you're like, wait a minute. But that's rad. Who cares? Here's the thing. So I was doing a little bit of research on this. Supposedly, from the information that I have, and this is where we can get into a pretty interesting conversation about this, is that at the time, Rockwell was not on speaking terms with his dad. It's not that his mom was married to Barry Gordy. It's just that his dad was Barry Gordy. But also, he tried to avoid nepotism by trying to get a record label without ever informing his dad. Right. But the, the thing that this brings up to me, something like a Joe Hill, you know, Joe Hill is Stephen King's son and he's made a career for himself without really, you know, using trading. his dad for connections. Right. Not trading on the name. But the flip side of that is like, I'm sure any person in the publishing industry knew who he was the second they met him. And I right. feel like that's kind of the same thing. It's like, yeah, you could try to get a record label and not use the fact that Barry Gordy's your dad, but you're working in an industry that he's a god in and people are going to know, yeah, that's Barry Gordy's son. Right. So it's almost <laughs> it's almost a tough spot to be in because yeah. that third party that's considering giving you or not giving you a, a record deal or, you know, put out a song, what if they're like, well, not that this does. I'm just speaking in hypotheticals. Like, well, you know, this guy's not very talented and the song kind of sucks, but you know, he's so-and-so's son. So do we want to poke that bear? And, you know, cause the, the wrath that could come down from, you know, whatever is, is devastating to us as a, as a label or, you know, and radio stations were definitely going to play it, but you know, I still think it's catchy. It's fun. You have access to all the best musicians in the world. And, you know, there was a guy, you know, like you mentioned, that was you have access to Michael Jackson to do your chorus. I mean, you're, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's your childhood friend is Michael Jackson, who's like right. right now. This is the peak thriller at this point. Right. I think you mentioned the actual cool part because Michael Jackson didn't do this song because it was like part of a big record deal or part of the empire or part of the Motown or whatever. He did it because his buddy was making a song. Yeah. That, and I didn't know this until I was doing some research, but also all the backup vocals are done by Jermaine Jackson in this song. Did he produce the song? I didn't, I didn't deep dive it because because Jermaine, you know, they did a ton of stuff. You know, that's, that's what he's, I don't know if he like even played the instruments or whatever, but Jermaine was like a, prolific producer for a lot of people you don't realize yeah i'm sure he was involved i didn't actually find that piece out to be totally honest i I don't you know it's like i said it's i don't know if it's a lot of it's out there but yeah and you know that's an interesting you know setup because you think it's all these iconic figures and really what i like about it is even back in the day of maybe the you know peak of the machine i don't know well i don't know maybe the machine's always peaked right but the peak of the music industry machine you know then it was just a couple buddies that got together to make a song that ended up being a hit 
which is cool. Yeah, no, and I, I like that element of it. Uh, this was something that I thought was funny, was that Motown actually came up with the stage name Rockwell. Uh, his actual name is Kennedy Gordy. Right. But they came up with the name Rockwell, and he agreed to use it because he felt that he rocked quite well. There's a lot of things I'll say about this song, but I, I wouldn't describe it as a rock song. <laughs> um, it is it is firmly like a new wave hip hop song. If I was going to throw it into any genre, <laughs> probably. Yeah, I don't. I don't even know where there's like a. There's probably a few parallel songs like Falco, and it had a very Euro feel to you know to it too. A little, like that's where your new wave comes in, but not you know not English new wave, but like Euro wave, like One Night in Bangkok and 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 stuff like that, where they're kind of mostly spoken word, but then still had some jam. I'd say there's even a little bit of like this era of Devo in there like just for how heavy that synth is and how uh, weird the vocal delivery is like, yeah and he you know with the accent and it you know, like if he had distorted his voice it would have been like total de- now, look i'm a you know devo's rad devo's incredible we've already done an episode on devo but i'll just oh, say yeah. again on the record Devo, probably top five bands that do not deserve to be called one hit wonders. I don't know how they think because they're not only prolific, probably the wrong term. Because if you look at, I've got their greatest hits on my phone and it's like, <laughs> I don't know, 400 songs or something. And, you know, it's, it's a whole huge bunch of, you know, it's, but there's like 30 members of Devo when you see them on stage <laughs> and they're all playing stuff, but it's, it's so innovative. And like, I don't even think you'd have like Beastie Boys with Rick Rubin were influenced by Devo and, you know, and stuff like that, you know, and, even this time, like they were way ahead of their game. I think they influenced way more hits than they're credited for actually having on their own. But because I think people didn't understand Devo and it's like they're from another world right now. Tying it back into to not just Rockwell, but tying it back into like what we're talking about with why you're on the show. Like Devo was almost like avant-garde filmmakers making music and they even have like the short film the the history of de-evolution i believe it's called no they were avant. that's that's the perfect um that's the only way to describe them you know and sometimes avant-garde maybe it's a even a different category of maybe it's like the bleeding edge of avant-garde because once you're avant-garde you're already in a category so it means you're not like special <laughs> yeah <laughs> if you're avant-garde you're in a category <laughs> like Devo was never even in a category. They were just Devo. And it has influences. And I think you're right, especially with that synth and the and the mix and bringing the, you know, the R&B and the soul into it and a little bit of the hip hop because it's kind of rap, but it's rap with like a Vincent Price accent. So it's not like, you know, hardcore hip hop rap, but it's spoken. So it's kind of cool. It's like if someone took Vincent Price's part in Thriller and was like, you could make a full song on that. I, like, I think, like I said, I think he watched Thriller a ton and was like, who's that guy at the end? <laughs> so the other thing that we're talking about Devo and why Devo shouldn't have been a one hit wonder. And one of the biggest reasons is how innovative and unique they were. So I can't say the same for Rockwell digging into like what some of his other singles were. <laughs> Are you familiar with the other singles that Rockwell put out at all? Uh, n- name the next biggest one and I'll tell you if I ever. <laughs> the next biggest one, which shockingly reached 35 on the Billboard charts, technically not a true one hit wonder, but also no one knows the song was Obscene Phone Call. Which is oh, yes, a- <laughs> another another corny the video. Yes, I do remember the video. I remember the video. It is the exact same themes of somebody watching me just now they're just calling you. <laughs> yeah. And 
And then his second his second album, the lead single, was called Peeping Tom. Is there a theme here? Like, is this projecting <laughs> somehow? Like, I don't I don't know Kennedy Gordy, you know, personally, <laughs> but like there seems to be a theme. And I hope there is not. I almost think like you were saying at that time, especially if you were this type of artist or had the access. You're not trying to write an album that you're going to go tour on. No, not you're at all. You're trying to write a song that's going to get some radio play, and it, you really are. You're you're probably making the video first before you write the song. One of the things that I've learned while I've been analyzing these one hit wonders uh, along with Chris is like there seems to be pocket moments in time where there's a ton of one hit wonders, and it's like the '50s was big for it, like the late '50s, early '60s. The 80s was big for it. And then the post grunge era, I feel like we're like the three big hotbeds for one hit wonders. And I've kind of figured out the reasons why for every single one of them. I, I think I think I know the theme. What's your what's your what's your figured it out theory? So with the 50s, it was that you weren't having anybody write their actual songs. So you had a group of roaming hit makers that were writing songs for like whatever new act. But like that was it. They would write a song for a 50s group and then move on to the next 50s group to write a song for. So you might have this one songwriting team that has like 40 songs to their name, but it's spread out across 35 bands that maybe only two of them had a second hit. Right. You've got the nine, the post grunge nineties. My theory is after doing this, that Nirvana end it. And record labels just scrambled to sign anybody who could possibly be the next Nirvana and just kept pumping out singles and seeing what would happen. Right. And with the 80s, I think it was that there's this brand new world called MTV, and it's all about who looks the best and can they do a music video. And the actual quality of the music kind of took a little bit of a dip, even though I love 80s music and I love that synthiness. There is a noticeable lack of like, like you had like your tears for fears that would write these really deep poetic lyrics, but then you have like somebody's watching me, <laughs> which is well, I think like schlocky camp. Exactly. <laughs> I think you're spot on in your different eras, but I think the over the umbrellaing of those three things are all the same. The Nirvana, the fifth, it's all the same. You had this explosion, and per, I, I think the the songwriting teams. I think you're spot on because that that happens a lot. That happens a lot in country music. Like you know, there's a handful of the top country music writers of all time that have like literally a hundred number one hits or something spread out over fifty artists, like you were saying. And I think in the fifties we had TV and radio got big. Rock and roll was new, and so they were just they were putting out so much stuff. That if you only had five bands or groups or singers in the 50s, you would have each one of them would have 50 number one singles because they're the same songs, like you were saying. But they were they were just throwing everything on the wall. Uh, it was like an arms race, you know, it was like a you know, proliferation of sound. And then same thing in the 80s, because we're going through the machine, but the 80s was jam-packed more than the 50s and the 90s. Because yeah, you you went all the way from you know deep. You know, even you know English New Wave, or even stuff like Depeche and The Cure, all the way to Rock, Rockwell, <laughs> and then you had great <laughs> stuff like Michael Michael Jackson, who was actually good songwriting and good you know music production, and then great performances. But then you had you know Madonna, who was blazing a trail. Like, did she write her songs? No, some maybe a little bit, but she was a, a huge force 
that created this own thing. But there was so much more in the 80s to choose from, and they were all battling for each other. And like you said, on the video, music video realm, in the 50s, you're trying to see who can get on Ed Sullivan. In yeah. the 80s, you're trying to see who's going to get on MTV. You had to look good and perform. Like, there's some great songs with cool bands, and they're terrible in their videos. And they're like, uh, <laughs> you guys can't act. You look really lame. So we're just going to do a concert video because that was like the bailout, right? But then you've got like cheesy, big production, like a, a tune that I love from the 80s. I don't know why. It's it's like on my YouTube playlist because it's a catchy tune is uh, She's a Beauty by the Tubes. But the video that I like kind of carnival, like the song's a little creepy, like when you actually listen to the song you're like uh problematic today but it's a catchy song but like it the, the guys are so bad and the biggest example of this is when you put d schneider and his group and we're not gonna take it and it's just like it's a little dude in spandex getting stuck in the hallway trying to get out yeah. of a kitchen and like the bass player is like so uncomfortable if people ever want to say that there's not a power music videos. You just have to ask Billy Squire what he thinks about music videos. <laughs> right. Because talk about a dude who pre-music videos was just knocking it out of the park with these anthems of the yes. 70s and early 80s with like right. the stroke and everybody wants you and stuff like that. Yeah. But then he shoots the music video for Rock Me Tonight and his career is over. It is one of the strangest, worst campiest music videos but it's not selling who billy squire is <laughs> at all and yeah. it destroyed his entire career he never yeah. bounced back from that join us today during the jeep celebration event right now get 20 percent below msrp for an average of 15,178 under msrp on the purchase of a 2023 jeep grand cherokee overland 4xe or summit 4xe not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. I'm not going to lie here. I've become a factor fanatic lately. I'm a busy guy and getting to eat restaurant quality meals that are ready to heat and eat in two minutes has been amazing. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You have 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. I've been spreading the word to everyone I know, not just here on the podcast, but in person as well. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. You get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And the math doesn't lie. Factor is less expensive than takeout. Plus, considering every meal is dietitian approved, it's also nutritious and delicious. So what are you waiting for? Get started today by heading to factormeals.com slash one hit 50 and use the code one hit 50 to get 50% off. That's code one hit 50. The words one hit and the number 50 that is at factormeals.com slash one hit 50 to get 50% off. Music became a visual medium. You can write that down because I was impressed. That's very profound of me. Um, <laughs> I think I'm the first person ever that that. said it, but that's yeah, not. <laughs> if I am, then the world's in trouble. Um, but no, it's. Uh, hang on, I'm going to pat myself on the back. I got to stretch. <laughs> it, it's so true, though. 
Now, then look at the flip side of that where you had people that were made for videos. And their songs were great too, and it just flowed. And then you could get all these great innovative directors and creative designers to do shit. Like, I mean, Duran Duran is the top. I, I feel like the the flip side of that is that it all builds to when we eventually hit a Milli Vanilli. We got to fabricate something that has this. We're gonna we're gonna create movie stars, yeah, or you know, visual images out of thin air. Uh, but you know, it's that was just probably the next progression of most people don't understand in music that when you listen into your favorite band, like I don't know what is it. At least half the time, the members of the band did not record the music for the album. That was one of the craziest things when I learned that a buddy of mine who was a studio musician. Yeah, those are the talent guys. And finding out that like all of these bands that I loved, he's like, yeah, I was the drummer on that. And I was yeah. like, what? I know a few of those artists, you know, and well, even back in the day, like, you know, now, you know, they're called the hired guns. And I thought that documentary should have been better because uh, I really wanted it to be really informative and go way back. But, you know, you had these contracted studio musicians that were fantastic. And I think the best representation of that dynamic, we're going off on, a you know, another tangent here, but the wonders Yes, when Ethan Embry's like not showing up and they're like, Hey, this is Wolf, <laughs> ironically, Wolfman. He's going to, you know, he's going to be your bassist. They're like, what does he even know this? Can you play bass? And he goes, blah, 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 and they go, uh, yeah, we're good. <laughs> so one other thing that I did not know, there is a band that was very, very popular, not even a decade ago that was the son and grandson of Barry Gordy. Do you know what band that was? It's not it's not Little Rockwell, right? No. So LMAFO, the group that did like Sexy and oh, I Know It and yeah. Party Rock Anthem okay. is made up. I just found this out today and it blew my mind is made okay. up of a son and a grandson of Barry Gordy. Well, that's pretty rad, though. That, that, that's honestly that's not to make joke to about me. a lineage, but that's a giant lineage. So I want to ask you a question. This song came out in 1984. Now, I was not alive yet, but you were. <laughs> and yes. I I have what the five biggest hits were in 1984. And I'm curious if you can guess any of them. Born in the USA had not come. That was 85. That was a huge Correct. album. Men had like four huge hits on it. I mean, something's got to be Madonna. Shockingly, no. But I would say that the anti-Madonna is is definitely uh, one of the five. Anti-Madonna. Where would you... Re- I, I'm I'm referring to Cindy Lauper and her song, oh, Girls that, Just Want to Have Fun. I was going, I was going, <laughs> da- I was going down the list and I was going to Cindy Lauper. You mean actually <laughs> someone who can write songs and is very good vocalist. Yes. Cindy, Cindy and, Lauper. And yeah. So I would say that where Madonna was always kind of the the pop princess, yeah. Cindy Lauper was definitely the the amazing voice who was secretly all about punk rock and and yes. anarchy and insanity. <laughs> right, but then had to create a visual persona that set that stayed true to who she was, but then also set her apart visually. But she's carried that through. I mean, rocking it today. She's awesome. Is there any other uh female artists? There are no more female artists, but I will say two of the hits are sung by the same person but one when they were in a band and one when they went solo. Phil Collins? No. The singer died on Christmas a couple years ago. Give me the band. Wham, Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go was one of the top five. And then what do you think was the George Michael solo song that was actually the best-selling single of 1984? Was Faith out? No, I will say- Faith was not out. That was 86, right? One would say possibly the most iconic saxophone 
of all time. Careless Whisper? Yeah, Careless Whisper. Yeah, that was the number one single of 1984. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Stevie Wonder was still hanging out in the charts with I Just Called to Say I Love You. And then Frankie goes to Hollywood. Relax. Relax? That was 84? If you if you had said, give me the year that Relax came out, I don't think I would have said before 86 for some reason. That's crazy. <laughs> so I'm, I, was, I was smoked on that one. Um, but I was also, you know, that's a, an interesting time because I was, you know, depending on what month of 84 we're talking about, I was 11, you know, 10 or 11. But I still like, you know, I loved music and I loved all sorts of music. And growing up in L.A., you had access to all of the music if you wanted it because you had radio stations that covered everything, including K-Rock. If you grew up in LA, you had if you had more than five friends, you had you you had five different musical influences. Some would be the <laughs> some would be the metalheads, you know, or like you know you know hardcore hairband people and friends. And then you had the alternatives and the dark, what what, what turned into you know like what maybe goths, but you know the Smiths and the Cure and Morrissey, which were darker, you know, English. And then you had Poppy, you know, Kiss FM and Power One Hundred Six, which was all top forty radio. And then like and, and then you had all this other. And then you had the R&B station. I mean, they were just cranking out so much stuff then. And a lot of times you got to go to events or whatever and meet these people or see them, you know, perform, which was pretty crazy. My first concert ever. That's always a question that everybody goes like, what was your first concert ever? Mine was the Jackson Victory Tour. Mine was this is so on brand for me. Uh, my first concert I ever went to was a Christian ska music festival called Ska Mania 98. <laughs> Which, <laughs> oh my god! I, even know. I think that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, and then the second concert I went to was my dad took me to see George Thorogood and Steve Miller band. Well, there's some range. Let's before we dive into the the big final question, which is, is are we going to give Rockwell the one hit thunder or the one hit blunder? Let's talk a little bit about Wolfman's Got Nards, the making, uh, not the making of. It's not a making of documentary. It's a fandom documentary about Monster Squad. So you've been working on this documentary for a couple of years. I, I'm apparently in it. Uh, I'm excited to finally see it. I pre-ordered my copy from everything I've heard from every review I've read is just such a love story to to a fandom that just connect it with this film, this weird film that that bombed in the box office, but just found a whole new life on home video and and on cable. Can you tell us a little bit? Of, can you tell me anyway? And the listeners will just have to come along for the ride uh, a little bit about the what led to the moment where you're like, I think we need to make a documentary about this. Yeah, that's always the 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 interesting kind of moment or or, or time period, and it was it really was a culmination of. You know, going all the way back to spring of 2006 when we did the first cast reunion screening at the original Alamo Draft House in downtown Austin. They, f you know, got in contact with us. They said, We found a print. Uh, we want to fly you and some cast members in and, and do a reunion screening because Eric Vespi, who was writing at the time for Ain't It Cool News and now at Rooster Teeth and a bunch of other publications, uh, put it together along with, you know, the Alamo and flew myself, Ryan, Ashley Bank. And Fred Decker in, and we're like, you guys want to watch this movie? Like, this is crazy. Like, it's going to be a weird thing. But, you know, let's just go and see that. Anyway, we didn't know it was going to be literally a nuclear detonation, <laughs> you know, with fans and the internet. And, you know, less than a year later, Lionsgate's putting out a 20th anniversary DVD. And we're headlining conventions and we're going all over the place. The, that print that I ended up knowing and befriending the two guys that actually owned that print was the only print in North America that anybody could get their hands on. 
that thing was on rent for every weekend for like eight years after that. And Matt Panacci and Adam Hewlin own those two North Carolina guys. And I'm, I'm friends with them now. They're also in the doc because they got to tell the story about the print, right? It really was just, we thought after that event and we did a convention or two that we thought it would kind of die out and, and wither away again. And not only were we wrong, we were really wrong. <laughs> so the fandom, you know, the, the fan base just kept growing and getting more vocal and stronger. And that's why we kept going to these appearances. And I would, you know, fly to Denver or I'd fly to, you know, in New York or somewhere, you know, somewhere in North Carolina and do, you know, like an appearance, just a one-off thing screening. And the place would be packed, absolutely packed. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. And like I said, we thought it would wane away and, and, it, and it didn't. It only got stronger. And then as you keep going to these appearances and you keep going to things like conventions and people are standing in line to take a photo with you or meet you for, you know, 90 seconds or five minutes, you know, whatever it ends up being. And you kept hearing these stories about how important this movie was to these people. And it was interesting and thoughtful, you know, for like the first couple of years, but it didn't die and it only got more and more stories. And the stories got extremely personal, extremely emotional, and they just kept rolling. And I was like, this is interesting because I'm looking at other fans of other movies and all these other great celebrities, of these, you know, whether it's a genre convention or a pop culture convention. And I'm like, I don't necessarily see the same connection with, you know, that group as this Monster Squad group. For some reason, this movie, whenever they saw it, some saw it in the theater, very few, as we know, uh, <laughs> or either saw it on HBO or their friend recorded it off HBO and took it around the neighborhood, or they kept going to the local video store so many times and they're like, you know what? Just take the damn tape. Like, quit coming in here. Like, just you own it now. <laughs> Go away. Or they'd steal it and their mom would get, you know, ripped for that 6250 licensing fee on their on her old MasterCard or something. And they just kept it and coveted it because this was their jam. And it, they kept telling me and, and, and Ryan and Ashley, and we, we combine all these stories of how it impacted them, how they connected with it and have not let go, and how a lot of times it actually changed or shaped their lives or who they are or how they went about their adolescence. And I was like, I don't know many other stories about this type of connection lasting this long, right? And I soon realized that those stories were a story. You know, as we got near the 30th anniversary year, we knew it was kind of going to be an interesting, you know, because the 25th, we're like, oh, it's 25. Okay. Everybody's gonna, like, let's all go away and go into the sunset. It's going to be over. <laughs> and it wasn't again. And then 30th came around and this was sort of the time I was like, you know, I think there's something interesting here. You know, they've been celebrating us for 30 years. We didn't know about it for the first 19. It's the only reason this movie is still alive are these kids and, you know, these adolescents and these teenagers and these college kids that found this movie and it connected with them. And it was their duty to share it with their best pals and then go out and create their own little groups that, to, you know, to conquer the world with. And I was like, you know what? Those stories and these people are a story. And then it goes deeper of how, you know, anything can kind of impact you. And, you know, like you mentioned before, this isn't a making of doc. It's not a, where are they now doc? I mean, who cares? <laughs> I'm right here. Yeah. You know, it's like, it, it's, and it's certainly also not, not to knock these other type of documentaries that have come out in the last, you know, five or six years, but it is not a straight 
fan service doc. They're fun. They're great. You get that little nostalgic itch. And he goes, it was very important to me and Henry McComas, who you know, who made the doc with me, you know, as the leader of the production team with uh, at Pilgrim Media Group. You know, we, we really concentrated on what the tone and theme and look and feel and heart of this would be. And we just kept getting even better stories and meeting better people on the road in that year that we shot the doc. We rolled cameras and premiered at our first festival with at, right at the 12-month mark. So I will say that this episode is going to be dropping on the 28th, which I'm pretty sure is the day that anybody can go and watch Wolfman's Got Nards, correct? They can't. It is the day after the official oh. release, but you'll have at least a 24-hour head start. And if anybody hears this on the 28th and then goes and watches Wolfman's Got Nards, please let me know via social or Matt, because that just means it's awesome and you guys are awesome. So uh, yeah, 27th <laughs> is the big VOD release. You can order it on iTunes. You can get it from your local VOD provider, your cable station, Dish Network, uh, you know, Telus, Verizon, you know, wherever you are in US and Canada. This is just a US and Canada release right now. And if you want, if you're a physical collector, there's actually a Blu-ray. And you can order that on Amazon. And uh, by you know by the twenty eighth, there's probably a couple other places that'll have it. But you know, just search for it. There's not too many other Wolfman's Got Nards documentaries, Blu-rays, search terms out there. <laughs> <laughs> and there's one last question we have to cover. It's the big. It's the name of the show. Bouncing back to Rockwell. Do we think Rockwell? Somebody watching me. Is it a one-hit thunder? Which means that it it came. It saw, it conquered, it brought all of the power. Rockwell should not be a one-hit wonder. He should be a superstar that everybody knows. Or was it a one-hit blunder? It probably shouldn't have been a hit at all. What was it even doing on the charts? Get that shit out of here. What say I, you? I'm going to split your first choice in half. I think <laughs> this is definitely on the merits of what it is, a one-hit thunder, but no, he should not have been a gigantic <laughs> icon. Yeah, I, so how, I how think I'm that? right there we'll, with we'll, you. We'll put the first one in half because it's such a fun. Yeah. I mean, look, it's a fun song. And it's a great I love jam. the time. It's it's a it's a formative time for me, and that's why it kind of you know hit me. You know, I was like, oh yeah, Rockwell. And you know, it's it's funny because you're learning about you know horror movies, and it's got tro I'm like you walk through, it's the moving camera, you know, very style, and you know, there's a blackbird that I was like, oh, that's very Hitchcock. I was like, oh, they're <laughs> just doing a whole Hitchcock movie, so it's very visual. This the song, even before the video came out, like it played a lot, like it was on the rotation on the top forty, like at the same, I think like three seventeen, four forty four. 531 and 650 like every day you know whatever they have those just cycles and it played a ton yeah i'm right there with you i having listened to a few of the other rockwell singles there's definitely a reason why there's only one song that he's known for but i mean this song is this is like there's a reason why this song is still playing every halloween you know over 20 i mean over 35 years since it was released yes and it's because it's just a great well-made song any other novel like i remember sending you a list of suggestions and it was a lot of novelty songs that kind of are just barely hanging on to cultural relevance right. anymore but but somebody's watching me is not one of those songs no it's it's it, you know like i said it, it's it's tough to pick something like my favorite any my favorite recorded anything of all time also happens to be a Halloween thing. Cause I've always loved Halloween, but my all time favorite thing ever recorded 
was a free promotional album that you got from Winchell's Donuts. <laughs> and it was about how to safely trick or treat. It was like a PSA on a record. But it had like these three kids and a narrator and these sounds. And it was it's called the spooky sounds of Halloween. And it had these three little kids and, and this little kid named Teeny. And he's got a line. He goes, it looks like a pumpkin pie with his clothes on. <laughs> and it's the it's the coolest thing. And, but what was rad about it is I think if you went and got a half a dozen donuts you, or if you're a kid, you got the record free. The record was clear. Oh. And it was square. Oh. <laughs> like, I mean, obviously the, 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 the grooves were round, but the album was square and I had that thing for, I, I wish I still had, I may somewhere in a box in Dorothy's garage, but that's, that's the, that's the, yeah. the mom. I mean, honestly, but, that, 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 so like, Halloween so, stuff is hard to find. Yeah. I was gonna say, what, what could we really say about they're coming to take me away? Aha uh-huh, for an hour. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. And you know, there's probably another handful of things if, you know, if, if you searched and, and did it, but it's all those campy sort of like. Oh, great. The Adams, the Adams family theme song, you know, it's over yeah. the monsters. You're like, those aren't what, those are th- title songs and theme, you know, they're not <laughs> things that ended up being one hit. <laughs> you know, I, Rockwell, the timing, my age at that time, it, it was, it was just special and it was kind of cool. And I mean, look, 87 was a big year, <laughs> you know, for a lot of things, a lot of great movies, including monster squad, which bombed. And so that was kind of weird, but then we wouldn't be talking if monster squad was a big hit in 87, we wouldn't be talking today about the documentary about a movie that bombed that these fans kept it alive for three decades. Exactly. It would have been some movie that did well and no one gives a shit about like Mr. Mom. (laughs) (laughs) Andre, thank you so much for joining us guys. Go and check out Wolfman's got nards. It's streaming at this point. Uh, well, not streaming. It's on VOD at this point. Uh, and the Blu-rays are available. I know that mine should be at my house by the time this episode drops. So do not miss out on watching this incredible documentary. Thank you again, Andre, for your time. Well, thank you. And I don't give spoilers, but Matt Kelly is in it for at least a second. <gasps> This has been One Hit Thunder. Underneath me is Roller Coaster Smoke by Punchline, but since Chris isn't here, let's talk about myself. Producer Matt is the host of Horror Movie Night and produces One Hit Thunder as well as my favorite episode of. He also appears in The Wolfman's Got Nards, which is available on VOD right now. Let us know your thoughts on the show by emailing us at onehitthunderpodcast at gmail.com and make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app. Tune in next week for another episode of One Hit Thunder. listening to the Geekscape Network. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. 
It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.